This is the Mark Podcast from Lifeway Women. We're your hosts, Elizabeth Heineman and Kelly King. Each episode, we'll talk about what God is doing, how He has and is marking each of us. Sometimes that will be through interviews, and sometimes we'll have conversations around the table. We're so glad you've joined us today. Are you looking for a way to stay in God's Word each day? Discover the revised and updated Journey Devotional Magazine by Lifeway Women. You'll receive three months of daily devotional content that will help you connect with God's Word and apply it to your life. The expanded quarterly magazine now includes reflection pages, more in-depth articles, and it's all packaged in a beautiful new design. For more information on subscribing, go to lifeway.com journey or ask your church to order them for all the women in your ministry. Hello and welcome to the Mark Podcast. I am Elizabeth Heineman and I am here with my co-host Kelly King. Hey Kelly. Hey Elizabeth. I am super excited about today's topic because we get questions about this at Lifeway Women all of the time. So all the this, time. That's right. So this is the episode that you want to earmark and go back to if you have ever wanted to write a Bible study or write a book. So, yes. Yes. So and not necessarily our, yeah. just writing it, but getting well, it published. Because I that's think that's true. I think that's what people are really asking a lot of times. But mm-hmm. yes. So today we have Tina Bosch and Ashley Gorman on the podcast. They've both been on the podcast before. Um, but if y'all don't mind just introducing yourself. Tell us about yourself, your family, and what you do at Lifeway. And Tina, we'll let you go first, and then we'll go to Ashley. Well, hello, Elizabeth and Kelly. It's so fun to be able to spend the afternoon with you guys again. Um, Honestly, at the moment, I am marveling in the fact that I'm the mom of a kid about to start college. Mm-hmm. It is completely absorbing my thoughts these days, and they're so layered. I'm proud of her. I'm also like dreading the moment when I realize she's no longer at our dinner table and when I mean to call up to her room and she's not there. And I think her leaving would be emotional for me if she was a few hours down the road, but she's going across the ocean. I know. It's so cool. (laughs) I know. So it's going to be definitely a transition for our family. I also have two other children, Micah and Naomi, um, and my husband, Brett, is in communications. He and I have served for many, many years overseas, almost 19 years in in Cyprus and then in Istanbul doing communications for some Christian nonprofits over there. And I joined the team at Lifeway just before the world shut down for COVID in 2020 and have been working ever since as the manager of the women's Bible study team. So I work with the team that makes the Bible studies. Yes. Ashley, what about you? Tell us about yourself. Yeah. Um, Hello. Thanks for having me me on. This is really fun. Um, My name is Ashley Gorman, and I am an acquisitions editor for B&H Publishing, which is the trade book publishing arm of Lifeway. So when people ask me, what is a trade book? Um, I say, it's not a Bible. It's not a Bible study. It's that thing that when you walk into Barnes and Noble and you look at the majority of the books on the shelves, those are trade books. Um, If you go in the Christian or the, you know, spiritual section, uh, those You'll, you'll find Christian living trade books, right? And so I, um, I'm i an acquisitions editor 
for our trade book publishing arm here at Lifeway. And I'm married to a wonderful man named Cole. Uh, and we have uh, been the proud foster parents of two littles uh, a few years ago, actually. And then once they were reunited with their biological families, we actually found out we were pregnant. Um, and that was, man, four years ago. So now we have a four-year-old. Her name is Charleston, but we call her Charlie. Um, and she is just, she burns with the energy of a thousand suns. <laughs> and she keeps me on my toes trying to keep up with her. And we just love her. Yes. Yeah. I'm yes. glad you explained the difference uh, or what a trade book is because I, my first like week at Lifeway kept hearing people talk about trade books and I went and Googled it because I was like, <laughs> I feel like I can't ask this question. Like I should already know this, but I don't know the answer to this question. So I went and Googled what is a trade book. So Yes, probably like your favorite books from the last year of your life in the Christian space. Those are trade books. Yes. Just, it's just the format that they're yeah. in. Yeah, that's, that's a trade book. Yeah. Well, and a lot of people I think get confused when they hear B and H and they hear Lifeway mm -hmm. and they go, oh, wait, that's this like same thing. And how does that work? And so it's always kind of good to explain explain that this is the publishing arm of our trade books at Lifeway. And and it's actually the second largest publisher of Christian books, That's right? right? We are second largest in market share, um, which is really fun. People, you know, usually the publisher is not the story. I think about if you think about the top 10 books in the last, I don't know, 10 or five years of your life, you could probably tell me the titles of them, but you probably don't know who published them. If you thought about like, oh, what's that emblem on the spine of the book? Doesn't that tell us who the publisher is? You probably don't know that because the publisher should never be the story. And when it comes to trade books, um, but really like the author and the content should be the story. Um, and so, yeah, so B&H is the trade book uh, publishing arm, but we don't, you know, flaunt B&H all over the place. Uh, <laughs> most people don't know what our name is, really. They just know the books that we publish. And um, that's the way it should be because we want our authors to be the ones that shine. Yes. Yeah, that's really good. Well, Elizabeth kind of alluded to this question when we talk about writing a book or Bible study and getting published. So when, when people ask you that question, how can I do this? How can I get published? Ashley, what's your kind of go-to answer? And then Tina, what do, how do you answer it too? Mm. Oh, man. So a question in the trade book space, and Tina will, I'm sure, answer for Bible studies. Usually this question takes the form of, when does a publisher say yes to a book? Um, because if a writer knows what criteria makes for a yes, then they're more likely to get published. And so our funnel is um, we, we start with lots of proposals and lots of ideas and lots of authors that want their messages out there in the world. And we have a funnel or a grid that we think through, so to speak. And the first rung on that is um, theological trustworthiness. So is this message theologically trustworthy? Uh, does it rise from the Bible? Is it something um, that we could align ourselves with? Um, on the theological level, is it trustworthy, which is a lot of um, why people come to Lifeway for certain resources is they want trustworthy material. Um, so does it make sense theologically? And is it um, aligned in that way? And then the next rung we think through is, okay, let's say it's theologically trustworthy. Um, the next thing we think through is authority. So uh, does the does the writer or the author have the authority to talk about this, whatever the slant of the book is and authority is not the same thing as platform. Sometimes people keep, sometimes people think they're the same, but they're not. So authority is different than platform. And we could talk about what that means, you know, in a later conversation, but does, does the author have the authority to talk about this? And then third down the rung is writing quality. 
So let's say it's theologically in line with us. The, the, the author has the authority. How is their writing? Um, is, is this really difficult to get through? Usually we will see samples of certain material. Um, is it compelling? Are they able to turn a phrase? Is it, is it pleasant to the ear, to the eye? You know, um, writing quality really matters. And then lastly, what connections is this author bringing to the table? Um, and so that would, those are kind of like the four things we think through when we come around something called pub board. And our pub board is just where we kick around uh, ideas that have come to us. And so we get um, ideas for books and we kick them around. And those are the four things uh, we talk about. Um, and so that's kind of like the expertise part of the answer people are looking for. Um, but then there's this element also that really does lean into the fact that the Spirit of God is at work in people's lives. And you can't really fake a thing God's doing in someone's life. Like we've all been through seasons where, we're, where we don't know how to put our finger on it, but we're like, the Lord's just doing a thing here. He's doing something. And you can tell that in somebody's writing, in somebody's life. Um, God really does lift certain people up at the right time to communicate a certain message for a certain generation. That just happens. So our goal um, is to be wise in what we can control um, and then also at the same time, follow the spirit where he seems to be leading in ways that we couldn't have planned for. Um, and so one way we say this is we, tr we try to take note of where the spirit seems to be moving and just join him and co-labor with him and his work. And, and one way we, I, I tend to talk about this is in the book of Acts, there's this phrase that shows up over and over again. It says, um, it seemed good to us and to the spirit. It seemed good to us to do this and to the Holy Spirit. Um, and in other words, you you take what seems good and wise to you. And in the publishing world for us with trade books, that's the funnel I just talked about. Um, ethical pu publishing principles, uh, publishing people with character, choosing what will keep the business viable and not simply um, to make money, but also, you know, also so that um, the people who handle this process and this message are uh, treated well and not like workhorses. And, and you use the, the grid, you know how to think through and you try to be an industry expert for sure. But then you also lean into what the spirit seems to be leading toward, what seems good to the spirit in someone's life. Sometimes there's an X factor with people that um, doesn't make a lot of sense, but man, it just really takes off. You know, um, it's not, you wouldn't have expected a certain book to take off. And really we see um, evidence of the spirit in that. So um, we try to do what seems good to us with that funnel I talked about and also what seems good to the spirit. And that's what I really love about our work at B&H. It's not just a publishing house. It's a Christian publishing house. So we try to mm -hmm. lean into both of those words um, as well as we can. That's so good. Tina, what would you add? And what was, what's different about publishing a Bible study? Mm -hmm. Yeah, all of that, Ashley, truly so good. I find myself nodding along all along the way. Um, because it's true that we are looking to see where the Lord is leading. And as a team, we're constantly praying for the Lord's guidance and discernment as we're thinking through decisions, as we're looking at authors and their work and their proposals. Um, I do think Bible study publishing is a little bit different in that, in that we will be asking the question, is, is this author already teaching? Does she have a vibrant ministry, you know, in her local church, in her community? Is there evidence, you know, that she has been, you know, developing the craft of Bible teaching? Because, you know, for Bible teaching, you're not just writing, you're really leading women to open the word. Um, one of the differences with Bible study publishing is that you really, you know, when you're reading a 
a book, a trade book, you typically, that's an experience, you're going to read it, but you're not interacting with it in the way you would necessarily with a Bible study. So one of the most important skills in Bible study writing is great question asking. And so when I see, I've realized a lot of the proposals that I get are not really Bible studies, they are devotional materials. So it's sort of a verse and then some reflections on that verse, you know, and you'll have another day and it's a verse and reflections on that verse. That that kind of writing actually fits better in Ashley's world than in mine, um, because right. we don't right. want a woman to be able to, to, you know, pick up one of our Bible studies and feel like she's done it and enjoyed it without having to open her Bible. Yes. You know, for us, Bible study requires engagement with the text of scripture itself. You know, we don't want women to just sit down with their Bible study, read it, close it, and be done for the day. They should be sitting down with their Bible study and their Bible side by side and working through them together. So that's one of the things we're really looking for are authors that are engaging deeply with the text of the Bible itself. You know, whether that is a verse by verse inductive study approach or whether it's it's they're following a theme or a topic through scripture, we still want to see really deep engagement with the text itself. So, you know, if I am talking to an author who aspires to be published in the Bible study space, I'm always going to ask, where are you teaching? You know, what have your experiences been teaching? And that's not necessarily a question that someone who may be working on a on a trade book would, you know, would be thinking about. Mm -hmm. So I think that's an important part. As far I actually I loved everything that you said about just sort of thinking through decisions when you're looking at proposals. I would second all of those. For us, one additional thing we'll be talking about as we're as our team is considering proposals that may come to us for Bible studies is also how does this fit in our larger catalog? You know, if we have just published a study on the book of Luke and we get a wonderful proposal for a study on the book of Luke, we're not likely to be able to publish it. We, I think one of the things that surprises people is how few studies we're actually able to publish a year. Our team typically only publishes somewhere in the range of eight to 10 studies a year. So that's not very many. If we've just published on a book, we're not gonna be able to look at a proposal on that same book or topic. So every publisher is also sort of looking at at, at the range of, of resources they're already offering to make sure that, that a new thing is gonna fill a gap or complement other things or answer a question or a need that women are asking um, that that isn't already covered by the works that, that are currently in our, in our portfolio. Does that make sense? Definitely, and I think um, what you said about uh, Opening the Bible, that's definitely something that we we talk about a lot. And um, I've said before, you know, like, if you can manage to finish a Bible study and you have not once opened your Bible or your Bible app or something, then you probably just read a trade book. And there's nothing wrong with that, but that's not what that is for. And so um, I think that's something to keep in mind. And you kind of started this, the answer to this question already, but like, what are some things that if somebody wants to write a book or a Bible study, and maybe they haven't even started yet, but they just have this, they feel like they were called to do it. They have a story maybe that they feel led to share. What are some things that they can start doing now to help them in that process? And Tina, I know you said Bible studies. Ashley, what are some, or like leading a Bible study and teaching. Ashley, what are some things that um, women, maybe especially in the trade book space, could start doing right now to help them in the process of writing a book. 
Yeah. Um, I think about similar to what Tina said is have you tested this content anywhere locally or regionally? Um, because even though the material looks different in a trade book than it does in a Bible study, um, it's still material that either resonates with someone or it doesn't. And so if you have a collection of ideas that can maybe be, be chapters in a book, um, you can repurpose some of that material in speaking engagements or um, as, a, as a topic to think through in your women's gathering. Maybe you meet with a group of women for an accountability group or something, um, or you do lead a Bible study and you could walk, walk through passages related to this topic and just see what resonates. You know, everybody thinks their idea is the best thing until they, you know, I think about the way the Proverbs talk about this. Everybody thinks they're right until um, somebody comes and uh, examines them and let other people examine it, right? Invite them in. And so part of this could be getting in a group of writers where you can speak into each other's work and then also just testing the material out on average people in your local church or um, a gathering of some sort that you go to to see what resonates and what doesn't. Um, I would also say make space to write just for you, like consistently in your week or your month, however you divide up your writing time. And make space to write for you and not just the internet. Mm. A lot of times people come to the scriptures or they only try their hand at writing if they're going to post it online. Um, if other people see it, it makes it worth the work, in other words. Um, but to retain your love for the craft instead of just being performative for other people, um, make space that's private, private writing space that's just for you and just for the Lord. That will maintain your love for it um, because it will drain your love for the craft itself if the only way that you use your written material is, is to perform for other people online, if that makes sense. I've seen writers go through that over and over again where they're like, I just feel like anytime I put words on a page now, it's just for to perform. Yeah. Um, and I don't love writing anymore. And so um, creating private spaces is one way to grow as a writer. Um, and then the last thing I would say, um, apart from the obvious things, you know, you can take a class, you can take a writing class and those kind of mm -hmm. things. But one thing I tell people is if you're called to write something, you don't have to wait for permission from a publisher to write it. Right. Um, you can write it and get it out to some group that's right in front of you. So if a publisher says no to an idea, that doesn't mean you weren't called to write it. It just might mean that the delivery mechanism isn't a publisher. So it might mean it's supposed to live in your local church or with your D group or as a resource for maybe a network you're a part of. Um, the assumption people bring into publishing conversations is, is almost this either or extreme mentality. Either a publisher says yes and validates my call or I just will never write it. And that doesn't sound like obedience to me. If mm -hmm. God calls you to write something, write it and let him open or shut the doors um, so that he can lead the material to the hands that it's meant to get into. And if he shuts the door for, you know, a broad, a broader publishing agreement, that's okay. Maybe it was meant to live in other environments. Um, yeah. A publishing house is not the only environment, I guess, is what I'm saying, that right. your material can live in. It can live in your church. It can live in your network. I think about my own story. You know, I came to faith in a college ministry, and there were these little spiral-bound Bible study <laughs> things that were probably printed at Kinko's, you know. Mm. And that's where I developed a love for the scripture. And it was just used in our little ministry. You know, it wasn't something um, a big publishing house had produced in a hardback form. But it's exactly what I needed. God called somebody to write that. And they wrote it. And they printed it in their little spiral bound book. And it changed my life. Um, and it got, and now I'm in a, in the seat of a publishing house, right? And so um, that story, along with many others I could think of, just proves that there are lots of environment, the written, 
environments that the written word can live in. And so a publisher is not your permission slip to answer the call. Yeah, that's that really is, that's like, yeah, I think we need to put that in a quote, Elizabeth. Yes. I think that's really I good. Think so too. And I think, too, I think, you know, people think, oh, I love to write or I want to write. But, but sitting down to write <laughs> is a whole different thing when you're in front of your computer. And you. so I would even encourage people, like, just start writing. Just, yes. Just do it and, you know, figure out the rhythm of that. But, you know, Tina, I think a lot of people say, well, you know, but how do I become a better writer? So are there some things that people can do to be better equipped to write for publication? Yes, absolutely. There are. Um, To be a better writer, you need to be a better reader. I mean, at the end of the day, the best writers are the best readers. And you'll find that one of the things when writers get together, they love to talk about is who they're reading, what they're reading, what they're being inspired by, and especially in the Bible study world too, what they're studying. Um, So I feel like, you know, some of our best Bible, uh, of course, theological education is is a wonderful tool if you are going to be a Bible study writer. But many of our Bible teachers, um, Bible study writers, aren't necessarily seminary trained, but you can tell when you talk to them that they are students of the Word, and they are reading constantly. And not just popular literature, but the but the classic works, the scholarly works that not not every woman picks up because they're trying to prepare themselves for the, for this publishing ministry. And so I really do think it's not possible to be a a great writer without being a great reader. So I would say that would be one thing to prepare yourself. I definitely have seen and love the growth of um, communities of writers that are giving one another good feedback. And I think quality feedback is the key there because it's not just everyone who can read your writing and and give you feedback that's actually going to help you refine it. Because you don't need to hear, oh my gosh, this is so great every time. You actually need someone who will really dig in and say, hey, you're making this point, but I'm not sure that was clear. You know, could you clarify that here? Or you make this jump, but there's a gap in this thought. You know, you need someone who can really dig in and interact with your content and and push you um, to be better. It's kind of that iron sharpening iron kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. That's the sort of writing community you want to find are other other writers who are growing in their craft who will continue um, to really push you to be better, to rework it. Um, you think you've rewritten that draft three times. Well, there maybe the fourth time it'll be even better, you know. So um, I think that's something you can do too to refine. And then also, like Ashley said, honestly, writing consistently is also one of the best tools. You do actually get faster and putting your and better if you are writing consistently. It really is like exercise. You all know what it feels like when you've like not exercised for a month and then you try to go back and do a workout and you regret it immediately the next day. It's You, you actually have to train those muscles um, in the same way as far as writing, editing, and refining goes. So I would say just even just writing consistently is helpful for becoming a better writer. And in the Christian ministry space, there is no way to be a great Christian writer without actually, um, without spiritual formation. Um, you, you do have to be a disciple of Christ yourself and walking with him daily and hearing from him daily and 
you know, seeking the guidance of the Spirit. I really appreciated what Ashley said earlier um, in our talk, just about the way that publishers rely on that. Writers do too. You know, the inspiration of the Spirit, there is no substitute for that when it comes to the quality of the content and the message at the heart um, of the book or the study, whatever it is, um, that it needs to be there and it comes, you know, from a vital relationship with the Lord. And I want to just add to this, a good editor makes all the difference in the world. <laughs> I was going to say to you that. love editors. Yes. Editors are great. Those writing groups can prepare you for editors. Um, I had to take, well, I got to take, I was an English writing major in college. So many of my classes were actually exactly what you were describing, Tina. Like we would bring in our works um, and I it was a creative writing most of the time. So um, it was either creative nonfiction or creative fiction or poetry. And we would literally just sit there while everyone else in the class picked apart what we had done. And one of my professors actually would not let us talk as the authors because he said, you are not there to explain your work to people once it's published. And so we just had to sit there and kind of take it. But it gave you this like um, – it gave you a resolve for the things and it helped you learn what was good, what you should do differently. I'll, I'll never forget. Um, one of my classmates was like, why is everything in this written in the passive voice? And I didn't even realize that. And so it yeah. made me conscious of that from there on out um, of the passive voice and not to do that. And so I think that's very helpful. And places that you can find that, some churches maybe have creative ministries or you could ask your pastor, like, are there people here that like to write. And um, maybe you could put together like a sort of writer's group within your church. But then libraries also have writer's groups. A lot of times independent bookstores might have them. Um, so those are just some places to kind of go to uh, find those groups of people. Um, I recently... Yeah, there's, a, there's a girl in my small group who is a writer and she she's just gathered other writers in the Nashville area. Mm-hmm that are all believers. They're in different churches, but they just gather, I think monthly, I can't remember how often, but they um, speak into each other's work, encourage each other, you know, get the red pen out and get brutal with each yeah. other's work too. Mm-hmm. Um, so it can look a lot of different ways. Yeah. I I mean, I one thing I thought about with this question was um, that's kind of related to this, it's adjacent, is staying committed to long format reading in your life. So not just uh, not just being a reader, but a long format reader. And so uh, a lot of times people expect to jump into writing long format with trade books because that's a lot of words. You know, that's anywhere from 35,000 to 60,000 words um, in, a, in a typical trade book. That's long format, <clears throat> long format writing. And so you have to stay committed to long format reading in your real life. And I, if you spend most of your days in these quick and easy short format spurts of words, think like tweets or Instagram captions or piecemealed sentences on Instagram reels, right? Um, that constant contact with short format uh, will shape you over time. It's going to shape the way you write words. It's going to shape the way you think about sentences and paragraphs and lo- the way you handle logical flow. It's going to shape your writing. And I'm not saying don't ever engage in those ways, but I'm saying prioritize staying immersed in long format thought. If you hone that craft now, your work really will be unique, I think, in about 10 or 20 years' time. We're coming on an age where people really don't know how to write in long format anymore. Mm-hmm. So if you stay committed to reading that way, you'll be better prepared for publication, I think, and you'll be more of a rarity. 
um, and your ability to, to do that. Yeah. And a lot of times you end up in the writing process and learning to write well. Most writers have a phase where they end up writing like the people that they're reading. So mm-hmm. you want to make sure you're reading good writers. And I mean that like fiction writers, poetry writers, everybody's like they're good writers in every genre. But you will eventually start to mimic them a little bit, which I think is good and actually helps prepare you for the next step, which is honing your own voice. Um, But that's definitely something that you'll start to do. And so, like Ashley said, that long form, like read books that you want to write like is as a part of that um, reading. Yeah, there's, I mean, even I run into this and I'm an editor. We all probably do. Mm -hmm. You'll get to like a long format article online and you'll get (laughs) about halfway through. And you see the little bar on the side yes. of the screen and you're like, how much longer is this? You yes. know, and, you, and we all do that, you know, and I'm like, and I have to, and there's that dissonance, that internal resistance you feel mm-hmm. and push through it. Like if there are people listening and they're like, that happens to me, it happens to me too. And I'm an editor. I spend all of my time in long format and I feel that way. We are so shaped by short format work. We don't even know how to read a long article anymore, but that, even that pushing through that, uh, that internal resistance and uh, getting through to the end. Do it just for the sake of getting reps and of, of, of forcing yourself and immersing yourself in long format and uh, fight against short format in those moments. It doesn't mean there aren't spaces for short format. It doesn't mean you can never check your Instagram. It just means if you want, if you're really committed to writing, you got to push through those moments of dissonance. Mm. That's good. So what are some common mistakes that people make when they want to be published? Tina, we'll let you go first on this one. I was really hoping that you, would, <laughs> you would call on Ashley here. No, I, you know, there, there, there are several. I mean, first of all, not having honed the craft of writing can o- often be a problem. Mm-hmm. And that comes up usually pretty quickly if you realize that the person whose proposal you're looking at has no publishing history at all. Not, not even just with a, with a public, you know, uh, a major publisher of a trade book, but not on, not on blogs or, you know, not on other websites or not in, you know, magazine publications. There are such a range of publications that if you do want to write long form material, you should have already been publishing some shorter pieces in other outlets. So I think, and, and that also gives you the opportunity to work with editors in those places. Um, any, any, I think publisher is going to be looking for some sort of publishing history, some sort of indication that you've been working towards this kind of a project, working on your craft, honing your writing, developing your voice, and also developing a group of people who are interested in your writing. Um, I think there's too much probably said about platform development these days, but it is important for there to be a community of people who is interested in the sorts of things that you're saying you really cannot be a successful writer in a vacuum. You do need to have a group of people who are interested in the sorts of questions you're asking, um, the kinds of message things that you're learning, the sorts of insights that you're sharing. I mean, you are, as a writer, serving a community. And, and as a Christian writer, you are serving the body of Christ. And you really cannot do that if you're not if you are isolated, you know, if you're not developing a community, whether that's a reading community or a study community in your local church, you do need to be, you know, interacting with people. So I think 
when I when I realize that someone hasn't shared their writing with anyone, they haven't published anywhere, it's an indication they haven't actually been serving a group of people through their writing. And that that is an important aspect um, to publishing now. Yes. Ashley, I'm curious what you'll say. Oh man. What was the I think the question is common mistakes people make yes. when they want to be published. When they one is they don't really know what format their idea should uh, be in or what shape it should take. So not every idea is a book idea. Um, so a common mistake is you think it should be a book, but really some books should be articles and some articles should just be uh, a quick thought you share in everyday conversation or maybe a tweet on the internet. And then some quick words published very quickly on the internet should have just stayed a thought. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, and so, and I wish I could take credit for that idea. I think that was actually my boss who, who taught me that. He said, not a, you know, some books should be articles, some articles should be tweets, some tweets should remain thoughts. <laughs> I feel like um, he, I feel like he tweeted that, which is kind of I think uh, he ironic. Did. He yeah. have, I, I got off Twitter many moons ago, so I don't remember, but, um, but yeah, so that was, I've carried that with me. So every time I look at a proposal, I think, is this really enough to fill out 50,000 words or should this have just been an article, you know? Um, is it just adding a bunch of fluff around the meat and the meat's not enough, right, to fill out? Like the reader's going to get, it's going to feel like they've gotten 20 pages in and they're like, oh, they're just trying to say this thing, you know. Um, so it's knowing the, so a common mistake is uh, the wrong format. You think this should be a book, but really, or sometimes I get proposals as a trade book and it should be a Bible study. Like what they're actually going mm -hmm. for is a Bible study or they're going for a Bible study in what, like Tina said before, it should be a book. It's actually coming to her in devotional format. Um, so considering format is really important. Two is not connected to what Tina said, which I loved, is developing, you know, this this readership is, is um, connected to audience. So a common mistake is uh, the, the writer doesn't know who they're speaking to. They don't know who their audience member is. They can't outline who the audience for this is. And the way that I like to talk about this is loving the reader as yourself. And so what I mean here is that um, there's another conversation partner on the other side of this medium known as writing. And to do this work well, you have to write to your actual reader and not your default reader. And what I mean by that is this. Um, a lot of times a book has an actual reader, but inside the author, there's actually that group of people they're trying to impress. Um, and that when they try to write toward the people they're trying to impress, maybe it's an old professor, maybe it's some boss you used to have years ago, maybe it's um, a certain, I don't know, a certain person in your life, um, or a certain uh, group of a place you wanted to get published one day, or I don't know, you take steps away from the actual reader. Um, to talk to your default reader. It's where you just naturally default and you drift toward writing toward that person, even if you're if the work you're working on isn't for them. And so I would say, love your reader as yourself, go get into the world of your reader. This is incarnation. This is like an incarnational approach to writing where it's, I'm going to go get in the world of my reader and I'm going to speak in the language they can understand. Um, I'm not going to write to my peer group who I'm trying to impress. And maybe they use a different set of terms, right? If you're, for, so for example, if you're trying to, to write to an under-discipled, um, less biblically literate reader, for example. A lot of trade books try to do this. They're trying to bridge the gap between academic thoughts and trade level thoughts, right? 
And they start throwing around terms their reader is never going to understand because they haven't written toward their reader. They haven't loved their reader as themselves using words the reader is going to understand. It doesn't mean you can't make their, or help the reader take a step toward learning something new. But it means is your posture toward the reader in a way they can understand. I mean, Jesus was a master at this. When he was with fishermen and he talked about evangelism, he used terms around fish. Like he talked about fishing for men, right? Mm -hmm. When he went to a, a woman who goes to a well a lot, he talked about water. You know, he used the word fish. He used the word water. He used agricultural examples in, in an agrarian society because he was using terms and ideas and illustrations his listeners could understand. It doesn't mean Jesus didn't know heady words, right? Maybe he did. Right. Like, But he chose to speak in a way that bent the ear of his listener. And so I coach authors all the time when they're drifting in their manuscripts. Hey, you're moving away from your real reader and you're, t you're talking to some default audience that's not the target audience of this book. You got to back up and you got to start, take steps back towards your actual reader. Um, so that's another, another mistake I see. Um, and then... Last thing I think people misunderstand is that, or they a common mistake they make is they think publishing's like a get rich quick scheme. <laughs> yes, or yes. a way to like replace other kinds of work. Whereas mm -hmm. most book contracts just aren't going to pay you enough to cover two years worth of salary. No. Yeah. Um, I found that the best writers actually have something else going on in their life that connects them to reality. When you work with a person who all they do is books they can end up taking steps away from reality and steps away from the reader. That's not true for everyone. There's plenty of people where all they do is their whole ministry is writing. All they do is books and they're doing great. But there are a lot of times where when somebody, if what, if what they do is only books, they can get a little bit divorced from the world of their reader. Um, and really they're separating themselves. I think, I mean, at least a lot of the good work I've seen in trade books have come from people who have some other thing that's like connecting them to real people in real life. It's, it's where you get, you know, people have this misunderstanding that like you disappear into a cabin into the woods and you have eight days of geniusness where you're like a madman writing on your typewriter, you know, mm -hmm. um, and they think that's what inspiration looks like. And I'm like, I'm sure that happens for some people, but most people I know, inspiration hits them in those everyday moments and that other thing you do, whether it's a conversation with your neighbors, uh, a reaction from your child, uh, an, an interaction you had with your boss that sparked some inspiration. It's like, or an, a conflict with your coworker that you learned from something from that's where, that's where, um, inspiration strikes and an idea hits you. Think of, uh, I think it's George Shaw. He was a telephone company employee. Like Charlotte Bronte was a governess. Margaret Atwood was a barista for a season. I mean, William Faulkner, I think was a postal worker. Yeah. Uh, like there's just so many historical examples of great writers who had a day job. Yeah. Um, they had some other thing that sparked inspiration and, um, you know, they all struggled with that in some way, if you read their work, but they did have vocational environments that connected them to inspiration and to real people and to reality. And so um, don't spurn a lot of the other hats you have to wear, because those are the very things that make you a better writer and give you ideas. That's good. Definitely a great word. For sure. So we want to know, um, on the Mark podcast, we try to bring people around the table and in the green room. And so we love to get behind the scenes looks. So really quickly, because we're, we're 
getting on the border of our time here, but we really want to know, is there something about your jobs that might surprise people? Maybe something that even surprised you when you took the job. So Tina, we'll let you go first on this one. Yes, I would say I had no idea just how many people are involved in producing books and keeping them in stock and distributing them. It is, in fact, a much more complex. I think a lot of writers have this sense that, oh, it's the editor and maybe, you know, a content, you know, acquisitions editor, content editor, maybe a copywriter or production editor. And that's pretty much it. In fact, there's this huge complex Mm -hmm. of people that are involved in marketing or in our world, video production and in financial analysis or in, you know, distribution in the warehouse, in purchasing, in obviously graphic design. I mean, you you cannot believe how many people are involved in making the publishing process work. And I do think it surprises people the, the time frame from you know, working on an idea to actually seeing a book in the market. I mean, typically we're talking now with authors about works that may be published in 2024 or even 2025. There's just a very long runway. It is a long process and it involves a lot of people. And that's one of the reasons we have to be so judicious about the projects that we commit our team's time to. Because it really is, you know, it it involves so many people. So there's a tremendous amount of responsibility and stewardship in making those decisions. Yeah. We always joke that nobody that works in publishing knows what year it currently is because we're like planning two or three years out. I think I've addressed more than one email as like this year in 2023. And then I'm like, wait, what what year is it right now? (laughs) So true. What about you, Ashley? What's something about your job that might surprise somebody? Oh, man. I feel like you're. I wear a lot of hats, and um, you have to be good, at least in the way that our trade book house works, is being interdisciplinary. I think you walk into an editing job and you think, my job's just going to be content. All I'm going to do is live in my happy books and read through my manuscripts. And that's, I mean, I spend a lot of time with words, that's for sure, but... Um, There are a lot of things I have to be conversant in, and um, we take an interdisciplinary approach where our teams help each other, um, where, you know, when I'm working through a manuscript, I'm pulling things that make sense for my marketing team, where I'm like, oh, this is strong. This could be a good content piece for the PR campaign, (laughs) Um, or here's a really good, like, pull quote we could use for a share square on the Amazon A plus page. Like, I'm thinking about that as I'm, I usually do it my third round through a manuscript, Um, I try to just handle the content well at first and then later down the line, I'll pull things that are, but I'm thinking in terms of marketing while I'm editing. And then our marketing team also thinks about the content all the time as they move in the marketing campaign. And so really we have to like lean into each other a lot. So I'm working uh, much more closely with all sorts of teams. I have to be conversant with our Amazon rep because all sorts of Amazon uh, issues come up and I have to be conversant with the Bible study team, you know, because sometimes we overlap authors and there's just a lot of different languages I have to speak that isn't just me and my manuscript. Yeah, Yeah. those are great answers. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, you both have been on the Marked podcast. You know, our last question has to do with being marked by something. But we wanted to specifically ask you guys today, um, since we're talking about publishing, what is one book or Bible study that has marked you in your walk with Christ? Ashley, you want to go first? 
Oh man, this was so hard. For I know. Me. Yeah, one, yeah, one book. Yeah. We're not, we're not Ooh. saying this is the only book that has Mark Ashley, but <laughs> and it can't be the Bible. Can we just say that? Right yeah, up front? it can't be the Bible. I think that's a good rule, Kelly. No, that is a good rule, man. Um, I struggled between J.I. Packer's Knowing God and Prodigal God by Tim Keller, but I think I'll go with Prodigal God by Tim Keller. Mm-hmm. That's a good one. Yeah. yeah. Tina, what about you? This is such a hard question on so many levels, and I have a feeling I would answer it differently on any given day. But today, when y'all asked that, I think the the book that came to mind was The Edge of The Edges of His Ways by Amy Carmichael. When I was in university, um, I had a mentor named Mary Jo Clemens, who was very involved, got me very involved in international ministry. And when I got married, she gave us, as our wedding gift, a a set of all of Amy Carmichael's works that were first editions. And I don't know, but The Edges of His Ways was one of the books that I find myself coming back to periodically and just pulling off the shelf. There was a long season that was really hard for me when we were living in Istanbul and Naomi was a baby when I just kept it by my bedside and I would pick it up and read it when I was so tired. Because you can, it's short bits, but you get a feeling of... Amy's engagement with the word. I mean, literally, she's breathing scripture while she's writing, but also her attention to the natural world and her acquaintance with suffering. And I think those three things together just were so powerful to me in a season that was really hard for me. So I would say I've been very marked by Amy Carmichael's writing for sure. Mm. That's good. Wow. Well, those are all really good. And I bet. I bet we could, like you said, Tina, on any given day, it could change a little bit too. And um, there's just so many great books out there and so many great Bible studies. And so we're just so thankful for both of you and the work that you do here at Lifeway and the way that you impact the kingdom through what is published. And so thank you for your work. And we really do appreciate you being on the Mark podcast today. Yes, thank Thank you you for having us. You bet. What a great time. All right, listeners. Well, thanks again for joining us this week. And Elizabeth and I will be back next week. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Kelly D. King and at E.D. Heinemann. Use the hashtag Marked Podcast to connect with us. You can also find Lifeway Women on all social media channels at Lifeway Women. All of today's show notes will be posted at lifewaywomen.com slash podcast. If you love the show, leave an iTunes review. It's a great way for other people to hear about the podcast. We'll see you next time.